0: BOOK THREE, CHAPTER FOUR, SECTION FOUR, OF THE FOOD OF THE GODS AND HOW IT CAME TO EARTH BY H. G. WELLS. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY CATHERINE EASTMAN. FOUR. His encounter with Catterham was entirely different from his anticipation. He had seen the man only twice in his life, once at dinner and once in the lobby of the house, And his imagination had been active not with the man, but with the creation of the newspapers and caricaturists, the legendary Catterham, Jack the Giant Killer, Perseus, and all the rest of it. The element of a human personality came in to disorder all that. Here was not the face of the caricatures and portraits, but the face of a worn and sleepless man, lined and drawn, yellow in the whites of the eyes, a little weakened about the mouth, Here indeed were the red-brown eyes, the black hair, the distinctive aquiline profile of the great demagogue, but here was also something else that smote any premeditated scorn and rhetoric aside. This man was suffering. He was suffering acutely. He was under enormous stress. From the beginning he had an air of impersonating himself. Presently, with a single gesture, the slightest movement— He revealed to Redwood that he was keeping himself up with drugs. He moved a thumb to his waistcoat pocket, and then, after a few sentences more, threw concealment aside and slipped the little tabloid to his lips. Moreover, in spite of the stresses upon him, in spite of the fact that he was in the wrong and Redwoods Jr. by a dozen years, that strange quality in him, the something, personal magnetism one may call it for want of a better name, That had won his way for him to this eminence of disaster was with him still on that also redwood had failed to reckon from the first so far as the course and conduct of their speech went caterham prevailed over redwood all the quality of the first phase of their meeting was determined by him all the tone and procedure were his that happened as if it was a matter of course all redwood's expectations vanished at his presence He shook hands before Redwood remembered that he meant to parry that familiarity. He pitched the note of their conference from the outset, sure and clear, as a search for expedience under a common catastrophe. If he made any mistake, it was when, ever and again, his fatigue got the better of his immediate attention, and the habit of the public meeting carried him away. Then he drew himself up. Through all the interview, both men stood, and looked away from Redwood and began to fence and justify. Once he even said, "'Gentlemen!' Quietly, expandingly, he began to talk. There were moments when Redwood ceased even to feel himself an interlocutor, when he became the mere auditor of a monologue. He became the privileged spectator of an extraordinary phenomenon, He perceived something almost like a specific difference between himself and this being whose beautiful voice enveloped him, who was talking, talking. This mind before him was so powerful and so limited. From its driving energy, its personal weight, its invincible oblivion to certain things, there sprang up in Redwood's mind the most grotesque and strange of images. Instead of an antagonist who was a fellow creature, a man one could hold morally responsible, and to whom one could address reasonable appeals, he saw Catterham as something, something like a monstrous rhinoceros, as it were, a civilized rhinoceros, begotten of the jungle of democratic affairs, a monster of irresistible onset and invincible resistance. In all the crashing conflicts of that tangle, he was supreme. And beyond? Beyond? This man was a being supremely adapted to make his way through multitudes of men. For him, there was no fault so important as self-contradiction, no science so significant as the reconciliation of interests. Economic realities, topographical necessities, the barely-touched minds of scientific expedients existed for him no more than railways or rifled guns or geographical literature exist for his animal prototype. What did exist were gatherings and caucuses and votes—above all, votes. He was votes incarnate—millions of votes. And now, in the great crisis, with the giants broken but not beaten, this vote-monster talked. It was so evident that even now he had everything to learn. He did not know there were physical laws and economic laws. Quantities and reactions that all humanity voting nemine contradicente cannot vote away, and that are disobeyed only at the price of destruction. He did not know there are moral laws that cannot be bent by any force of glamour, or are bent only to fly back with vindictive violence. In the face of shrapnel or the Judgment Day, it was evident to Redwood that this man would have sheltered behind some curiously dodged vote of the House of Commons. What most concerned his mind now was not the powers that held the fastness away there to the south, not defeat and death, but the effect of these things upon his majority, the cardinal reality in his life. He had to defeat the giants or go under. He was by no means absolutely despairful. In this hour of his utmost failure, with blood and disaster upon his hands, and the rich promise of still more horrible disaster, with the gigantic destinies of the world towering and toppling over him, he was capable of a belief that by sheer exertion of his voice, by explaining and qualifying and restating, he might yet reconstitute his power. He was puzzled and distressed, no doubt, fatigued and suffering. But if only he could keep up, if only he could keep talking... As he talked, he seemed to Redwood to advance and recede, to dilate and contract. Redwood's share of the talk was of the most subsidiary sort, wedges, as it were, suddenly thrust in. That's all nonsense. No. It's no use suggesting that. Then why did you begin? It is doubtful if Catterham really heard him at all. Round such interpolations, Catterham's speech flowed indeed like some swift stream about a rock. There, this incredible man stood, on his official hearthrug, talking, talking with enormous power and skill, talking as though a pause in his talk, his explanations, his presentation of standpoints and lights, of considerations and expedients, would permit some antagonistic influence to leap into being, into vocal being, the only being he could comprehend. There he stood amidst the slightly faded splendors of that official room, in which one man after another had succumbed to the belief that a certain power of intervention was the creative control of an empire. The more he talked, the more certain Redwood's sense of stupendous futility grew. Did this man realize that while he stood and talked there, the whole great world was moving? That the invincible tide of growth flowed and flowed? That there were any hours but parliamentary hours, or any weapons in the hands of the Avengers of blood? Outside, darkling the whole room, a single leaf of giant Virginian creeper tapped unheeded on the pane. Redwood became anxious to end this amazing monologue, to escape to sanity and judgment, to that beleaguered camp, the fastness of the future, where at the very nucleus of greatness the sons were gathered together. For that, this talking was endured. He had a curious impression that unless this monologue ended, he would presently find himself carried away by it, that he must fight against Caterham's voice as one fights against a drug, Facts had altered and were altering beneath that spell. What was the man saying? Since Redwood had to report it to the children of the food, in a sort of way he perceived it did matter, he would have to listen and guard his sense of realities as well as he could. Much about blood guiltiness. That was eloquence. That didn't matter. Next. He was suggesting a convention... He was suggesting that the surviving children of the food should capitulate and go apart and form a community of their own. There were precedents, he said, for this. We would assign them territory. Where? Interjected Redwood, stooping to argue. Catterham snatched at that concession. He turned his face to Redwood's, and his voice fell to a persuasive reasonableness. That could be determined. That, he contended, was a quite subsidiary question. Then he went on to stipulate, "'And except for them and where they are, we must have absolute control. The food and all the fruits of the food must be stamped out.' Redwood found himself bargaining. "'The princess. She stands apart.' "'No,' said Redwood, struggling to get back to the old footing. "'That's absurd.' That, afterwards. At any rate, we are agreed that the making of the food must stop. I have agreed to nothing. I have said nothing. But on one planet to have two races of men, one great, one small, consider what has happened. Consider that is but a little foretaste of what might presently happen if this food has its way. Consider all you have already brought upon this world. "'if there is to be a race of giants increasing and multiplying.' "'It is not for me to argue,' said Redwood. "'I must go to our sons. "'I want to go to my son. "'That is why I have come to you. "'Tell me exactly what you offer.' "'Caterham made a speech upon his terms. "'The children of the food were to be given a great reservation, "'in North America, perhaps, or Africa.' in which they might live out their lives in their own fashion. But it's nonsense, said Redwood. There are other giants now abroad, all over Europe, here and there. There could be an international convention. It's not impossible. Something of the sort indeed has already been spoken of. But in this reservation they can live out their own lives in their own way. They may do what they like. They may make what they like. We shall be glad if they will make us things. They may be happy. Think. Provided there are no more children. Precisely. The children are for us. And so, sir, we shall save the world. We shall save it absolutely from the fruits of your terrible discovery. It is not too late for us. Only we are eager to temper expediency with mercy. "'Even now we are burning and searing the places their shells hit yesterday. "'We can get it under, trust me, we shall get it under. "'But in that way, without cruelty, without injustice... "'And suppose the children do not agree?' "'For the first time, Catterham looked Redwood fully in the face. "'They must!' "'I don't think they will.' "'Why should they not agree?' "'he asked in richly-toned amazement. "'Suppose they don't. "'What can it be but war? "'We cannot have the thing go on. "'We cannot, sir. "'Have you scientific men no imagination? "'Have you no mercy? "'We cannot have our world trampled under a growing herd "'of such monsters and monstrous growths "'as your food has made. "'We cannot and we cannot.' I ask you, sir, what can it be but war? And remember, this that has happened is only a beginning. This was a skirmish, a mere affair of police. Believe me, a mere affair of police. Do not be cheated by perspective, by the immediate bigness of these newer things. Behind us is the nation, is humanity. Behind the thousands who have died, there are millions. Were it not for the fear of bloodshed, sir, behind our first attacks, there would be forming other attacks even now. Whether we can kill this food or not, most assuredly we can kill your sons. You reckon too much on the things of yesterday, on the happenings of a mere score of years, on one battle. You have no sense of the slow course of history. I offer this convention for the sake of lives, not because it can change the inevitable end. If you think that your poor two dozen of giants can resist all the forces of our people and of all the alien peoples who will come to our aid, if you think you can change humanity at a blow in a single generation and alter the nature and stature of man... He flung out an arm. Go to them now, sir. See them for all the evil they have done, crouching among their wounded. He stopped, as though he had glanced at Redwood's son by chance. There came a pause. Go to them, he said. That is what I want to do. Then go now. He turned and pressed the button of a bell. Without, in immediate response, came a sound of opening doors and hastening feet. The talk was at an end. The display was over. Abruptly, Catterham seemed to contract, to shrivel up into a yellow-faced, fagged-out, middle-sized, middle-aged man. He stepped forward as if he were stepping out of a picture, and with a complete assumption of that friendliness that lies behind all the public conflicts of our race, he held out his hand to Redwood. As if it were a matter of course, Redwood shook hands with him for the second time. End of Book Three, Chapter Four